welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, award-winning writer and commentator Susan McKay discusses her book, Northern Protestants, on Shifting Ground. The moderator is Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times. The episode was recorded at the Printworks, Dublin Castle, on the 9th of October 2021. My name is Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times, and I'm delighted to be here today speaking to Susan McKay about her new book, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground, which is a kind of a sequel to um, her first book on the subject, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People. But Susan has been writing about the North pretty much her entire career. In fact, I just bought one of her other books, Backstage, Burn Mind These Dead, which is interviews with survivors or relatives, people bereaved by the Troubles, which is a very powerful testimony, which I guess, you know, brings home um, just, you know, the depth of the, the importance of this subject. Susan is a former Northern editor of the Sunday Tribune and a co-founder of the Belfast Rape Crisis Centre. Uh, she now lives in the South, but is originally from Derry in the north. Um, maybe, Susan, if we could start off just talking a little bit about your own background then. You're obviously from a Protestant background yourself, but mm. perhaps not entirely a typical one, or perhaps put another way, you know, how you developed as an individual was maybe not typical for your generation anyway. Well, I'm of the generation that kind of came of age with the Troubles. So I started going to secondary school in Derry in 1969. You know, so everything was just starting to to happen at that stage. So I was born, um, I can never say now I was born into a Protestant family in Derry without thinking of how this was put to me in an accusing way by Nelson McCausland of the DUP when he was writing a piece in which he claimed that the BBC shouldn't employ me (laughs) but um, yeah I was born my parents were both school teachers and they were kind of both of them came from fairly staunch working class backgrounds but both of them had kind of gone to college and stuff and they were changing they were they were sort of transitioning into being they would have been like quite sympathetic to the civil rights movement but cautiously so because we lived in a very loyalist area Mm -hmm. When I started going to school, I was immediately drawn to the whole sort of Irish music scene and Christy Moore and Planksty and, and all of that, which involved then going into the Republican part of Derry. And so I started to sort of move out of my own uh, community at a quite a young age. Mm-hmm. But also my father would have given me um, Seamus Heaney's poetry books as they came out. And I think that he did that partly because he loved Heaney's use of rural County Derry language, which he, my father, also used. And we would laugh at him when he when he used these words. So I think he wanted us to see that this language had a proud sort yes. of history. It, so it gave it a sort of a legitimacy. So, yeah, or... so we weren't brought up in a very purist Protestant way. But going back a generation, I know your, I think your maternal grandfather was an orange man. Yeah, he was a, a real proud wee orange man and, you know, had the whole set of beliefs about, you know, that if you looked up to your betters, they would look after you. And sure enough, he got a house in the White City Estate in, in Dungannon. And, you know, that was the, that was, I 
realised when I started writing about Protestantism that that was a that was how you were meant to be. You know, the whole orange system relies upon that thing of looking up to your betters and knowing your place. And the sense that one identity was sufficient to do you, that, yeah. you know, you didn't need a socialist identity because if you were in the orange order, the natural order mm -hmm. of things would be that, you know, you would, that would be your advantage that you required, in other words, to sort of, to advance, to get a job, to get a house mm. and so forth. And and above all, there was to be no solidarity with Catholics. Mm -hmm. Tell us then how you, you know, how your career developed then. You came down to Trinity, I yeah, guess. I got, I got a scholarship to Trinity and left the North think, in 1975, thinking I never, ever wanted to go back there. Mm -hmm. I just fled the place, you know. And uh, went, that was came, the year that Heaney came south as well. Uh, I, don't, I, can't, I don't know. Um, but anyway, um, came to Trinity and, and sort of just was completely, completely bewildered. Um, like, for example, part of my scholarship was that I got commons, which is the formal dinner in Trinity every evening. Three meals. And I just couldn't. I had no ability to handle the class aspect of that you know I didn't know how to behave in that kind of setting mm -hmm. I was completely completely at sea and um, I found Dublin quite bewildering I thought I felt that you know I'd no, I'd no way of exploring my identity as part of anything that was available to me in Dublin you know mm -hmm. I was surrounded by people who had very strong opinions about the north and didn't seem to need to ask northerners what they thought mm -hmm. you know so anyway i ended up going back to belfast in 1981 uh in a kind of probably deliberate effort to find out my own place in society and when i got to belfast i discovered that it was so much fiercer a place than dublin um i found belfast quite a terrifying place 1981 it was Year just the after hunger. the hunger strikes yeah. and so I ended up, I, I couldn't identify with any political party there, but I did feel the need to be politically active. So that was when I got involved in working with some other women to set up the Belfast Rape Crisis mm -hmm. Centre. And that became, my, my feminism really became the, the sort of plank of everything mm -hmm. that I've, I've done since. And I'm imagining that in those circles, feminism was, you know, a much more important identifying common ground, if you like, rather than whether you're from a orange or green background? Well, no, it was, it was completely contested all the time. Everybody fought with each other all the time. <laughs> and there was all this stuff about, you can't, be a, you can't be a unionist and be a feminist. You can't be a Republican and not be a feminist. And, you know, if you're a, fe if you're a feminist, you have to support the women on uh, the hunger strikes the in the Armagh jail and yeah. stuff. And, yeah. No, it was quite ferocious, mm -hmm. really quite ferocious. And tell us how you get into journalism then. Well, I worked in the Rape Crisis Centre for a good while and then I went down to Sligo and ran a centre for young unemployed people there. And then my friend Trish Hegarty said that I should become a journalist and I thought, well, that's good. It's the first piece of career advice <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> so I did do that. I did the Dublin City University course for okay. a year, which was quite strange because I was a good bit older than anybody else on the course. Mm -hmm and felt very worldly wise. But I mean, in fact, I was only 30, but mm -hmm. I felt very old. And um, then I got an employ I was employed in the Irish press and then Vincent Brown gave me my break when mm -hmm. he employed me in the Tribune. And I, I quickly started doing, you know, social affairs stuff there and then the Northern stuff. And then I took over from Ed Maloney 
when he left. And I, I suppose I kind of transformed the, the way that the Tribune covered the North because Ed had obviously covered it during the conflict years primarily, mm -hmm. whereas I was coming in at the, the end of the conflict, the beginning of the peace process. So mm -hmm. it was a period of transition and I started bringing in stuff like coverage of social issues and mm -hmm. violence against women and that kind of thing mm -hmm. and, and cultural mm -hmm. stuff. And maybe more on the human cost of, of the trouble, yeah, maybe yeah. You know, survivor stories or victim stories. Yeah, I mean, I think my background is having trained as a counsellor was a big help when it came to being a journalist because it, it's sort of, you're very aware of how the way that people ask people questions can in itself be quite traumatising. Mm -hmm. So it was good to have that skill going mm -hmm. into journalism, especially when working with people who've had horrendous experiences. Can we move on now to um, to the two books then? So, firstly, um, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, like that came out in the year two thousand, I think. Yeah. So, so the the timing of that then was that sort of was your thinking? You've just had the Good Friday Agreement, which is maybe you know um, a full stop to the troubles. Uh, let's now is a good time to take stock or what else was Yeah, well, it was that. And it was it was like, it was the beginning of a new era and it just seemed so momentous. But I think it was also because having been working in the, the Sunday Tribune, I was very aware that um, a lot of people in the Republic just didn't know enough about the North and in particular didn't know very much about um, the Protestant community in the North. Mm -hmm. You know, they would, be, they would have been aware of Paisley, obviously, as this monstrous negative demagogue figure, mm -hmm. but not of the diversity that was there in, in that community. Or, and I just felt that it would be interesting to sort of present that. But, but primarily, yes, it's about the transition from... Uh, the conflict into the peace process and mm -hmm. the other side of the Good Friday Agreement. And I guess when you're putting together, you know, a kaleidoscopic portrait <clears throat> of a community, a big question is all is always how do you choose um, who to include, who to leave out? Obviously, from a journalistic point of view, you're going to gravitate towards interesting stories, people, you know, who have got a story to tell. But equally, you know, You've got to be mindful, I imagine, of reflecting uh, the community in all its diversity. Yeah, well, in this in this first book, um, my thinking was that I should try to broadly represent the 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 ways in which opinions were held in the north. So, therefore, there is a predominance in this of uh, unionist people because the majority of people at that stage would have been voting unionist. That has changed a great mm -hmm. deal since, but, and I was, I, I changed my own approach there. But in this book, I sort of went for particular, you know yourself being from where you're from, mm -hmm. Martin, that in the North, like where you're from is hugely important to your experience of everything. You know, if somebody has been killed in your area, then that creates a particular sort of atmosphere mm -hmm. and, and story in your, your community or your part of the community, and it affects the relationship of one community to another and all, all of that. So I divided it up into sort of places, like I did a chapter about Portadown because at that stage, Drum Cree was on, the Drum Cree protests, mm -hmm. which were sort of a last ditch attempt to defeat the Good Friday Agreement. 
And there's still relics of Drum Cree going on in the north, amazingly, all these years later. In fact, it's enjoying a bit of a resurgence at the moment. So Portadown, I spent a lot of time at Drum Cree listening to what was being said there in the crowds, because mm-hmm. often it's what's being said in the crowd that's Not interesting rather than what's coming from the, the platform. Yep. And then other places that I went to were, you know, um, the border because obviously the border is always important when you're writing about the North. Mm-hmm. It's such a sort of trouble zone, really, in its own quiet way. And then Derry, because obviously being from Derry, I think it's the centre of the universe. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it features in the second book as well. So that book was very much organised around particular places and their particular history. I want to sort of um, conclude with the, the first book before moving on to the second one, but again, you know, the way that the second book is, is ordered, it's again, it's it's broken up geographically mm-hmm. with, you know, maybe different areas. And I guess, yes, um, like I remember going to university and, you know, as a Catholic from um, Banbridge in County Down and going to university <clears> meeting <throat> some uh, Catholic uh, fellow student from OMA in mm-hmm. Tyrone and just a completely different experience mm-hmm. and was the whole sort of west of the band being you know predominantly Catholic and therefore if you're from an area where you know your community is in the majority mm-hmm. it's a completely different experience mm-hmm. to maybe growing up somewhere where you're very much uh, the minority so I'm imagining like the you know there definitely is no sense that there's a the north is a is a homogenous place. No, it's not only means. divided, but mm-hmm. equally different areas have got a completely different mm-hmm. feel. You know, far beyond just the color of the the paving stones mm-hmm. or or the flags that might fly mm-hmm. there. In doing the first book, did it kind of, you know, confirm your own understanding of a place that you already knew pretty well? Or in doing it, did did you did you yourself? learn lessons? No, I learned a huge amount from from doing that book because I just talked to so many people and um, I I learned a lot about my own sense of where I was in in the community and the phrase was something, the phrase that I used in relation to it was the people I uneasily call my own, Mm -hmm. you know, because I realised that to a great extent I was formed and I was part of the Protestant community in the North, but I also felt I'd travelled a very long way from it. But not rejecting it entirely or not. No, by no means it. rejecting it. Yeah. I mean, when the book came out, that I was accused, of course, of being a Lundy and a traitor, you know, because I had been critical. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the big problem in unionism. And that's why Lundy is on the cover of the mm-hmm. new book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this thing of, you know, that if you stray off the narrow path of what is supposed to be unionist belief, you're a traitor. Yes. You know. But, and also maybe betraying from within, sort of mm-hmm. telling secrets out of school. Yeah. Not perhaps that um, the fact that there's a sectarian strand to um, Protestant identity in the North mm-hmm. is a huge secret, but maybe like Newton Emerson, I think in his review, uh, referred to the fact that it was almost like something that was unspoken or certainly mm-hmm. in the mainstream media was maybe glossed over. It wasn't sort of parsed. Um, or yeah. examined, and it reminded me a little bit of the famous John Waters interview with Charles Hawhey in Hot Press, where he included every expletive that Hawhey uttered, which mm-hmm. would not have made you know any other <laughs> yeah. um, coverage, whereas mm-hmm. you faithfully recorded exactly what people said mm-hmm. and thought. Um, yeah, and actually some people, I, I was contacted by some people afterwards who said that they found that liberating, the acknowledgement of sectarianism, they found it liberating because they were struggling with it themselves in whatever part of their community they were living in, that mm-hmm. they 
they liked it being acknowledged in that mm -hmm, way. It mm -hmm. kind of brought it out into the open. Yeah, opening the windows. Mm. So if we can now move on uh, to the new book then, which has got um, a similar but slightly different title, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. It, it, it feels to me almost that, you know, there's always unsettling or, or shifting, whatever. Mm. There's change is, it seems to be a constant. Um, it seems to be a community that maybe always feels um, that the status quo is not being sustained, that their institutions are, are under threat from, yeah. say, the fall of Stormont in, mm -hmm. in 71 to, you know, the loss of a unionist majority to the Good Friday Agreement, mm -hmm. maybe sort of political changes that, that they don't um, uphold, demographic changes that they're uncomfortable with. So, first question. Well, that's kind of all the answers. <laughs> Sorry, asked and answered, <laughs> as they say in American uh, courtroom dramas. Um, so, why go back 20, 20 years on? Why um, now? Well, people have been saying to me over the years, you should do another edition of it. And it, it sort of, the time never seemed right. And then with the centenary of Northern Ireland coming up and also the whole sort of absolute drama of the fact that unionism no longer has a majority at Stormont, which mm -hmm. is just, I don't know if people in the Republic have any sense of how momentous that is mm -hmm. and how unsettling unionism is finding it. Um, so, and and then just the demographic change as well. You know, it's now the case that it's only in the over 70s or 60s or 70s that there is actually now a Protestant majority. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the fact that, you know, say... If you look at the question of a united Ireland, um, something like 50% of under 45-year-olds from the whole community now support unification of Ireland in the north. You know, like that's so different from if you if you looked at that, say, in the mm -hmm. over 60s, it would mm -hmm. be a very, very different picture. So the north is changing dramatically. It's actually changing much more dramatically than I knew when I started the book. Um, I took the title from something that the poet Jean Blakeney said to me. We, we went for a walk along the Fermanagh border. Her father was a customs man along there. And she told me that she had, um, she had been one of what she called the panicked surge of Protestants who voted for the DUP in 2017, having never been a DUP voter. Mm -hmm. And she said, um, I felt, uh, I felt, the ground the, that the ground was shifting and that unionism needed to steady itself, you know. And but it then started to become very, very shifting. It reminded me of last last year. I remember seeing this thing on television of a a piece of a bog that had broken off somewhere in a river or somewhere up about Castle Derg, I think. And it was just you know, this piece of land was mm -hmm. flying down the middle of this river, you know, and the north has become like that. It's changing very, very quickly at the moment. And I think that's reflected in the sense of panic that you see in the mm -hmm. unionist political groups. So one thing that struck me, maybe the, the main thing that struck me um, reading a fascinating book, again, I'm from there, but mm -hmm. I haven't lived there for quite some time. And even though... Um, you know, I try to keep as informed and engaged as I can. Um, it was definitely eye-opening to me to sort of, again, see that kaleidoscope of so many different people's experiences. I guess my key takeaway was it's a book not about identity, but about identities in the mm -hmm. plural, that no longer is there this sort of dominant theme of 
you know, I'm from a Protestant background. Mm -hmm. I am Northern Irish yeah. or British or both. Um, I'm a unionist or a loyalist or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now there are so many more ways of identifying, whether it be feminist or socialist or environmentalist or globalist or, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. So Yeah, it's changed enormously. And in fact, um, a couple of people have said to me, oh, would you write a third Northern Protestants? Mm -hmm. uh, but if I left another 20 years, that would put me in my 80s. So I'm hoping not, that not I'm hoping that even as a self-employed person, I might be able to retire <laughs> by that stage. But um, yeah, I actually felt, no, I wouldn't probably do a third book because I felt a little bit sectarian asking people to be Protestants for me, or, you know, I, I felt that I was imposing a binary on yes. Northern Irish society, which mm -hmm. is no longer appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it is an aspect of, it's a really, really good sign of, of the liberation which has taken place because of the Good Friday Agreement, that an awful lot of people were willing to talk to me this time around in a way that they weren't the last time about being not a practicing Protestant mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. in a mixed relationship mm -hmm. or... Uh, from parents who were from different relationships you know there was just a whole change and a much more uh -huh. fluidity and, and I think that that binary thing of the Protestant the two mm -hmm. communities yeah. the twin uh, the twin communities frozen in basalt or whatever that yep. John Montague calls them mm -hmm. you know that's that's really broken down quite a lot and it's a really really good thing. I think I remember you saying that you got to know and become friends with uh, Lear McKee, the, the journalist who was um, tragically murdered uh, in Derry um, yeah, two years ago. Yeah. And after a while, it gradually dawned on, on you yeah. that actually you'd presumed that you was from a mm -hmm. Protestant background for whatever reason, and then, you know, discovered that actually she was, you know, largely from a Catholic background. And that was actually yeah. pleasing I felt, to you. Yeah, to I was delighted by that because... Like, you know, from being from where you're from and of, of a certain vintage as well, that mm -hmm. uh, you, in the troubles, everybody would keep an eye on everybody else. Mm -hmm. And you'd always want to know where you were with people, which, generally speaking, was this horrible reflex to find out, is this a Catholic or a Protestant, you know? And there was all sorts of ways of doing it. And uh, one of the people that I was speaking to about this was uh, Scott McKendry, who's a mm -hmm. poet from the Shankill in Belfast. Mm -hmm. And Scott said that his father worked in the shipyards and one of his colleagues told him that you could always tell by the back of someone's neck <laughs> what, whether they were one or the other, you know. But I, when I realised that I hadn't done that in relation to Lyra, I felt so free, mm -hmm. you know, because... Um, and it's something that younger people don't do now. Yeah. Like, I've, I interviewed some people in that book... Um, a really lovely young woman called Rebecca Crockett, for example, in Derry, who's only 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was quite offended at the idea that you would want to know what religion your friends were. She couldn't understand why I was even asking her about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's fantastic. There was another thing that I read, I'm not sure if it was in the book, or just um, recently about pub how, you know, how public transport can make a difference. Mm -hmm. And there are these new sort of, you know, routes established um, in... Belfast buses and gliders, gliders, mm. and there was like there was a depressing controversy over whether it, it was going to go up as the Antrim Road mm. or some other a Catholic road or a Protestant mm. road, basically, which is depressing. But more positively, I was reading that you know young people from East Belfast were now confident or comfortable enough 
to, you know, go to um, West yeah. Belfast for a music festival or even to drink in the park or whatever. Yeah. Well, there's... Um are you saying that drinking in parks is a, is a good uh, lifestyle for young people? <laughs> in, the, in the current climate, um, <laughs> it's got a lot to be said for Yeah, it. no, uh, one of the, a, peop, a person that I interviewed who I found very, very interesting in Derry was um, Kenny McFarland, who's mm-hmm. the chairperson of the London Derry Bands Forum. Yeah. And he's one of the Derry people who, as a child, kind of got put out of Derry City. At a certain stage, he was living on the edge of the bog side with his Protestant family, and, and they just had, there was a lot of, trouble and hassle and eventually they just moved mm-hmm. out to a place called New Buildings which is which he described as basically being like a kind of internment camp for Protestants but he got involved in the whole bands loyalist band scene and um, he talked about how uh, a band bands are generally seen in this very negative sectarian light but actually he said it's a really good way for a working class kid to learn a musical instrument Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he talked about how his kids and their friends now are in the loyalist bands they learn how to play the flute or the drum or whatever and then they come home in the evening from work and they um, go out to the bars in Waterloo Street and listen to the Irish music there and I thought that's so different Mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. when I was at school when it was a real thing Mm -hmm. to be going you had to go through an army checkpoint to go to those bars in Waterloo Street and it was really transgressive to be doing that Mm -hmm. and uh, but it's all he said the phrase that he actually used was we want normal politics Mm-hmm. And an interesting thing happened in Derry as well. And I think it was in 2013 when the All-Ireland Flower was held in the city. And they, um, the people who were organising it decided that they were going to try to include the, the loyalist bands mm-hmm. and the Protestants choirs and everything in the flower. And Kenny said, um, so they came to us and they, they said, would you do this? And he said to his committee, they'll expect us to say no. What mm-hmm. if we say yes? You know, and they did say yes. Mm-hmm. And it was apparently it was fantastic. And, and people really loved it. And it was a very healing yes. thing. I'm thinking, I can't remember where it was from, but, you know, there's a wonderful sort of musical performance where they had lambeg drums and byrons mm-hmm. all in the same sort of musical arrangement. Um, the idea being that, you know, two traditions can not only live side by side, but actually... Um, occasionally at least coalesce. Well, I think it's like what you said earlier about the, the question of minorities. I think that, you know, Derry, Bernadette Devlin famously dubbed Derry as the capital city of injustice mm-hmm. because of the way that the city council was gerrymandered so that there was always going to be a unionist majority. But it is actually now a unionist minority city in the normal way and, and unionists no longer dominate the council and everything. But... Um, there is a more mannerly relationship now between the unionist community and the nationalist community in Derry, and a huge amount of work went into that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you'd have to say as well, Martin McGuinness played quite a considerable part in that because he behaved in quite a statesmanly way between the the communities there, and he was very supportive of the bands community, for example. Yeah, and, re- you know, and by reaching out, by building bridges, yeah. whatever, by, by creating a space. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you, you mentioned Scott McKendry there, the, the poet mm-hmm. in Belfast. Like, I read a brilliant essay by him on the area of East Belfast off the Shankill Road, The Hammer. Uh, yeah, West, um, West, West, West Belfast. Sorry, West yeah. Belfast. And it was just a really brilliant portrait mm-hmm. of, of a community which... And suffered terrible social deprivation mm-hmm. and been kind of broken up um, by not just violence, but also kind of supposed regeneration, which actually broke up communities mm-hmm. of terraced houses into these awful sounding tower blocks, whatever, which 
became like a magnet for 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 social problems and deprivation mm. above and beyond uh, paramilitarism. Um, but I guess I wanted to say there's quite a few um, writers um, mentioned mm. um, in your book or, or that you interview in the book. For example, Jan Carson, um, who's written you know one of the best books to come out of the novels to come out of the North in recent years, The Firestarters, mm. which is shortlisted for two big prizes in France in the last couple of months, the French translation. Would you like to say a little bit, like obviously there's been a long tradition of, of great writing from the Protestant tradition in the North, um, Sam Hannibal and so forth, Mary Jones and in the 80s and 90s perhaps, but to my mind anyway, there seems to be a bit of a flowering of, of great writing from um, that's coming out of the you know, people of a Protestant background in the North. I'm thinking of Jan, mm -hmm. uh, but also Lucy Caldwell, Wendy Erskine, Rosemary Jenkinson, maybe even Angeline uh, King writing in Ulster Scots. Would you like to say a little about, about yeah. that? Or? I mean, to my mind, the, the, the great poet of the Protestant imagination in the North is Derek Mahon, mm -hmm. but he's not often seen as such, partly because he was so angry with the North and so angry with the, the whole unionist community. And, and he wrote, he did a... An interview with Paul Jerkin and McGill in, a, in the 1980s, I think it was, in which he just excoriates unionism. And uh, it's a really, really intemperate, interesting article. But um, yeah, I think there is an absolute renaissance of, of um, in the arts in the North at the moment, and it's being led by young women. Mm -hmm. And all of the people that you mentioned, but also... Um, a young woman called Stacy Gregg, who I, I think she, I think it's like, you know, the way when um, uh, a, a marsh or something has been polluted and, and all the wild birds have left and things, and, and it's just a piece of wasteland, and then something is done, something changes, and these exotic birds start coming back again. And to me, Stacy Gregg is like a sign of that things must be sort of okay in many ways in the North because she's a young. She's an absolutely brilliant young playwright from um, East Belfast, outer East Belfast. And she went off to college in, um, she went to Cambridge and like me in Trinity was just completely bewildered. Mm -hmm. She said she got into a lot of trouble and uh, she was called in by her tutor one day and the tutor said, couldn't you go off to some friends in Paris for a few weeks? You know, <laughs> and she sort of thought, well, this... This just isn't my world yeah. at all, you know. But she became this very eclectic playwright. And she's come back to Northern Ireland now with, you know, garlanded with awards from all over the world. And she's living she's living with her wife and their little child in Bangor, County mm -hmm. Down, you know, perfectly comfortably, perfectly at ease with being there. Her wife is from Essex and wanted a view of the sea, you know, so... It's, I think it's really great to see that happening. It's sort of like yeah. in my generation, people who didn't fit in left. And didn't come back. And didn't come back or, mm -hmm. or and went and tormented people all over the world with their unhappiness, <laughs> you know, about not being home. Mm -hmm. You know, but whereas now, like she, I might read a little bit, Please. bit from yeah. her actually. That'd be lovely. Um, she uses a great verb about Northern Ireland, which I hope will be in this bit. Yeah. This little chapter, the book is in sort of quite small little chapters, which I think makes it quite easy to read, doesn't it? Because you can just pick and choose bits of it. For sure. Um, but this piece is called Emancipating Myself from Restrictions Arising from Shame. 
She launched herself as a furious and utterly original dramatic artist in England, got some of her best breaks in the Republic of Ireland and is now back in Northern Ireland where she has just made her first feature film and has currently another one shooting. Stacey Gregg is a restless iconoclast, perched for now with her wife and child in Bangor on the North Down coast, but holding onto their flat in London just in case they want to leave again. I'm an Irish playwright who's at home in London, Dublin and Belfast. A lot of my identity has straddled binaries, gender, nationality, class, she said. I'm comfortable with that. I pursue it. I'm happiest in the in-between places. 2020 is a terrible year to have made a film, but it was an absolute blast. It's a psychological drama and a contemporary ghost story set in Belfast. I've never stopped trying to write about my Northern Irishness. Having lived in groovy parts of London and Brighton, it's hard to deal with the aggression about gender that persists here, she said. You can't grow up here and not be political. I'm very aware that Protestants don't get a good rap. I feel uneasy when people, work, when people mock working class Protestants. It shows a poverty of empathy. There's a flavor of condescension. I find value in being from a people who were seen as the oppressor in the relationship. It's uncomfortable and I feel it's a moral duty to understand that discomfort. There is transformation afoot, she senses. Northern Ireland has unclenched somewhat. Young people are just more respectful and open. Attitudes to consent really have changed. That suits her. I've been emancipating myself from restrictions arising from shame. Digital natives have access to ideas that go far beyond those imparted by the traditional cultural sources that informed their parents' imaginations, she said. There is a fluidity to their sense of persona and identity. I think that's really, really important what she says there, and I found it to be the case. You know, there are so many young people now in the North from all communities who don't vote, aren't particularly concerned about the constitutional question, but they are very political. And some of them look to the Republicans, see how, you know, same-sex marriage and abortion rights were introduced here, not by politicians, but by mass movements, civil society movements. And they're encouraged by that in the northern context. It's really hard in the north because mm -hmm. politics is really obdurate in the north, but they are trying it. And they're interested in things like, you know, global climate justice and climate change. And, you know, they're not so tied to the whole notion of what it is to be Northern Irish. Is just on that question of identity, I guess. So I think you're right that it isn't, you know, the first thing that people necessarily think of when they, when they wake up in the morning, you know, am I, I'm Irish or I'm British mm -hmm. or I'm Northern Irish. Um, but maybe for you yourself, um, I guess, you know, you've lived down here for, for quite some time. Um, but I think I've, I've heard you describe yourself as both Irish and Northern Irish. Yeah, I've adopted, Is... I've adopted this kind of James Bondian uh, notion of... <laughs> Irish, Northern Irish, <laughs> you know, because I definitely, I would say my husband and children are Irish, mm -hmm. you know, the, our girls grew up here in, in Dublin, uh, my husband is from Wales, but from an Irish background, and quite staunch about being Irish in a way that I wouldn't be, mm -hmm. but um, glad he's not here. Interesting, he you staunch. He wouldn't approve of me <laughs> saying that, but... Um, so, but I definitely feel that I have an identity which isn't that of the mainstream here, you know, like I have my radio tuned into BBC Northern Ireland all the time and my husband comes into the room and changes it to RTE and <laughs> so it goes, you know, but there's definitely a thing about being from Northern Ireland. There is an anguish to being from Northern Ireland and I, 
you know, I, I don't see that ending because, like, it's really difficult in the North at the moment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a volatile moment. And you sometimes feel, do people here realise that? You know, do people realise that the good, that the DUP is moving very, very close to explicitly saying that it no longer supports the Good Friday Agreement? You know, these things are happening north of the border and they're not really very much discussed down here. So in answer to your question, I think... I see myself as Northern Irish, but I don't particularly like that denomination on its own. So Irish, Northern Irish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it, it is fascinating the the variety of identities again, or the, you know the different layers, whatever, and even how people, you know, sometimes for their own devices when they're trying to add up a majority for in favour of United Ireland from mm -hmm. opinion polls, Northern Irish, you might think is sort of secessionist, or mm -hmm. it certainly doesn't say to me. It doesn't yeah. shout out to me, um, pro-United Ireland. No. It's a, you know, it's a separate identity. Mm -hmm. And then some people see themselves as Northern Irish and British. Mm -hmm. um, other people see themselves as, you know, Northern Irish, but maybe identifying more with Ireland. Um, Rosemary Jenkinson, the, the writer, <clears throat> coined the, the term Brit-Irish mm -hmm. um, to sum up her own identity. Mm -hmm. I guess, how can I put this then? Um, like... Some people will sort of, like Colm Tobin, for example, recently um, in an article in The Guardian, you know, there are a couple of comments which I think provoked mm. a lot of upset, maybe north of the border. Basically, I think he said something that, you know, <coughs> did people mm. down here want to import or didn't want to import mm. sectarian hatreds mm. um, from the north? I think part of and the pushback... And the perpetual, perpetual culture of perpetual grievance. That as well. Said, yeah. Now, I think maybe part of the pushback to that was, you know, he was quoting from his own book, which um, he certainly researched in 1986, A Walk Along the Border. Mm -hmm. And it kind of felt that, you know, maybe unlike yourself, he hasn't um, done a follow-up. He hasn't maybe, you know, what he's writing about is something... You know, he's writing with the past, maybe, and it doesn't yeah. chime with. No, I think it, how it people... didn't. It didn't reflect well on him. It, it was very ignorant what he said, and uh, very out of touch with how things actually are. And I wouldn't personally want to be identifying myself with Michael McDowell in the way that he did. You know, he sort of this warning about the spectre of Sinn Féin. I mean, you can be politically opposed to Sinn Féin, but you have to acknowledge that they are a popular party, both north and south of the border. And uh, you can't dismiss all of the people who vote for them in the way that he tried to do. And I, I just, I've, it really rankled with me the notion that somehow we are attached in the North to our sectarian culture because mm. sectarianism was a, is an affliction in the North. And um, I personally have come to feel that it can't be resolved in the context of Northern Ireland you know, I, I think the northern state is coming to an end. I don't, I don't think it can work because I don't think that unionism has had the generosity of imagination to share Northern Ireland. They, they, they needed to make it an attractive place for the other nationalist community to live in, and they, they haven't done that. And it has recently emerged that um, there's an unwillingness to accept that under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the next First Minister might be from Sinn Féin. 
which is just a complete sort of betrayal of the notion of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, the, the executive office, which used to be known as OFM, DFM, Office of the First and Deputy First Ministers, mm -hmm. it's a shared office. The First and Deputy First Ministers are equal roles. They're badly named, I think, but they are equal roles. So the notion that somehow or other unionism has persisted with the... The, the myth that they are still the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland because they have the first ministry mm -hmm. and they cannot tolerate symbolically the notion of, of uh, the other being the first minister. It's a very, very bad sign of how rooted the Good Friday Agreement is in political unionism. But I think it is in the community. That's the thing. And, and that's why I think that there's a lot of hope in Northern Ireland, but it's not really reflected in the way that unionist politics mm -hmm. is behaving. I think I would say, um, obviously, the North has been blighted by sectarianism, mm. but to just sort of leave that as a kind of a blanket thing, the North is defined by that sectarianism, mm. or everyone in the North is tainted somehow by sectarian attitudes, that is kind of quite offensive, or it's, it's certainly It was untrue. very offensive, but it was, it was obviously, it, you know, Colin Tobin is now a wealthy internationalist. You know, I, I read a piece, an interview with him in the... Um, New, Yorker. New Yorker the other day in which he was talking about his four homes all over the world and the one of them wasn't in Balamina let's put it that way and uh, his loss <laughs> his loss yeah but you know he doesn't know what he's talking about and I think a lot of um, quite otherwise quite politically astute people in the republic mm -hmm. I don't think they really understand how seismic the Good Friday Agreement was or its ambitions mm -hmm. you know the, the ambition for peace and reconciliation and the architecture that it yeah. put in place between the islands and, and between yeah. north and south or I don't think people grasp mm -hmm. that here or the great work that people have mm -hmm. been putting in on the ground like I was in Belfast for a couple of days during the week um, and I was in a room with um, people from you know, neighbouring communities mm -hmm. in, in North Belfast working in community relations or, or peace building or whatever. And, you know, they knew each other mm -hmm. and they worked alongside each other and they were kind of, you know, when things were, you know, maybe hot and heavy in, in the summer with some of the protests, you know, there are a lot of people on the ground that are working to kind mm -hmm. of um, defuse situations and build bridges and build understanding. There was another guy in the room who worked for, again, a, a loyalist community organisation mm -hmm. in South London Derry or whatever, like, but as, as he described it. And, um, but again, you know, he was talking about working with people from the other community. So um, I think, yeah, there are different ways of understanding the North, but to kind of portray it as, you know, as what could have been the former Yugoslavia, that was, mm -hmm. you know, it was never the case. And there were always... Um, you know, a lot of people on both sides who weren't sectarian and who basically kept the fabric of the place together. Well, also, if you think about things like the, the thing that has happened recently with the, the British government announcing that they're going to introduce an amnesty and they're going to draw a line under the past and that there's not going to be any further investigations. And then you think about what happened either yesterday or the day before when that report, new report came, in, came out about OMA, about the OMA bomb with further evidence that that bomb could perhaps have been prevented. You know, that's our history. We need to know our history. There's something mm -hmm. profoundly anti-historical about the notion that you can just write off the troubles. I mean, look, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of murders were unsolved. Mm -hmm. And there were structures set up under the Stormont House Agreement, which could have helped to find a way around that, you know. 
there's probably not going to be very many more prosecutions because the evidence doesn't exist or people are too old or the principles are dead. Uh, but there, there are lots of other ways that the truth could be found in, within properly set up structures. And the government said that it was going to introduce that within 100 days of the resumption of the um, executive in 2020. And then it was just abandoned. And the next thing we hear is there's going to be um, an amnesty. I mean, obviously people are going to complain about that. And if that's, you know, what he's talking about is a culture of grievance. I mean, there is grievance there. There's grievance among people who, are, who have been left with the awfulness of, not, of having somebody in their family described, say, as being a paramilitary when they weren't or that they had been involved in something that they weren't or who killed them or why did they kill them or who told them to kill them. You know, of course, those people are going to have a sense of grievance. Obviously, um, your book very much focuses on the Protestant community in the North, mm -hmm. but there's, you know, the other side of the, the coin, if you like, which is um, the Catholic community and how it has changed. Like, Fanula O'Connor um, wrote a very good book, I think, In Search of a State, mm -hmm. published by Blackstaff in the early 90s. <clears throat> like, whilst researching this, did you have a kind of a weather eye and sort of seeing you know, what was happening um, in the Catholic community or how it um, has maybe changed? Has it, you know, would you say liberalised and secularised in, in a similar way or at a similar pace? I think that there's a, there are a lot of differences and I think that the Protestant community is, is beginning to realise that, that there are problems about confidence in the Protestant community that have to do with not being community-minded in the same way that the, the Catholic community has been over the years. You know, that you look at the, the GAA, the Catholic Church, you know, the schools, Irish language. You know, there, there are various things that the Catholic community has kind of built into the fabric of its sense of itself, you know. Whereas within the unionist community, a lot of people sort of, sort of you know, they'll say it's our culture and, and you sort of sense, well, they, they mean the 12th. But what else do they mean? Because they don't mean Stacey Gregg. You know, they don't mean Derek Mahon. Mm -hmm. they, they have quite a narrow version of what their culture is. You know, and you, you, as a reporter over the years in the North, I would have gone to lots and lots of public meetings and community halls all over the place. You know, we tiny villages and small towns and in Belfast, you know. And they're generally Catholic, they're generally nationalist, they're often Republican. Mm -hmm. They're also sometimes organised by local councils who invite unionists to take part and then the unionists don't come. You know, so there's uh, an ability to talk and debate and hold your own in a conversation that exists in a lot of Catholic, people from a Catholic background that doesn't exist in the, the Protestant community and that's, that needs to change because then it just creates this anger. People just get angry because they can't express themselves. Did you find any pushback when you were um, looking for people to interview for this book to, you know, to again, to get that balance? Most of the reviews of, of the book have been extremely positive and not all from, you know, necessarily people who would be, you know, from a nationalist background or whatever, for example, you know, Kevin Meyer's review in the, in the Irish Independent was extremely enthusiastic and full of praise. Like, one, like the sole one that I came across that was critical was by Henry MacDonald. Um, and he said, 
there were far too many Lundies in the book and far too few apprentices, by which he meant there were there was an imbalance of you know people who were sort of moving beyond the traditional Protestant unionist identity and too few of say ones who would sort of you would identify as being mm-hmm. similar to the the politicians that the community largely has elected, say, in the DUP. What would you say to to that criticism? Well, I don't think that it's true. I mean, I think that I I deliberately did in this book go looking for uh, alternative voices because it really annoys me how few voices are still heard in the Republic, in particular from the North. You know, even if somebody is doing a piece about the Protestant community, it seems like there's about half a dozen people five of the men mm-hmm. who get asked to talk, you know. And there was that report that that senator did down here about Protestant opinion, and it was just like nearly all men and nearly all from a very particular sort of uh, unionist background. The usual and, suspects. Yeah. And so I was deliberately looking for for those people, but it was, I mean, that, that review was really weird because he, he, he talked about a particular person in it um, who's actually in the book and who is a really fantastic person. Uh, He's um, Kyle Black. Mm -hmm. He's the son of a prison officer who was murdered relatively recently by dissident Republicans. And he's a really, really thoughtful anti-sectarian person. And he's a DUP councillor. And he's talking about how he believes that he can, he believes that the DUP needs to change. And he obviously feels that he can bring change within that party. Mm -hmm. Now, plenty of people would argue with him that he's not going to succeed, but he's a very, very honourable person. And and he was pleased to be in the book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we talked a lot before he did the interview and he was happy with the interview and he thanked me for including the interview. So then it's quite strange to find yourself being attacked in a review. Plus there are several, like um, Willie Fraser from South Armagh, there's a hardline unionist... um, Preacher from South Armagh, yeah, there's lots of Roy the, there's, Begg, there's Sammy a, Wilson. Yeah, there's a very broad representation of, of people in the book. I mean, I, I think that review was more just sort of like there was a good book to be written about Protestants and this wasn't it. Mm-hmm. And that, the book that should have been written should have been written by me. <laughs> you know, that was that basically what the subplot of that particular review was. Another but in relation to your question about the, the Catholic side of things, Martin, I couldn't write that sort of book myself because... Mm-hmm. I know Protestantism in my bones, you know, I was gro- I grew up with it. I know I have all the sectarian reflexes. I have to quash them all the time, mm-hmm. you know, and I couldn't do that. I'd, I'm not steeped in no. the Protestant community, but I would love to see somebody yeah. do something like that, bearing in mind also what I said earlier, though, about not particularly liking that binary thing. Sure, But there course. is something interesting to be written there. You might well have an opinion, though, about um, how nationalism or its political representatives can work towards making the North a better place or building reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Like Sinn Féin is obviously on the rise down here, might very well be in government down here. But they've come in for quite a lot of criticism for, you know, maybe their, you know, how they commemorate what they, you know, their tradition, they're celebrating mm-hmm. hunger strikers and um, the dead of the IRA. How does that fit in, would you say, with the, the need for reconciliation, for building bridges um, both in the north and in the context of, you know, of working positively and progressively towards um, a united Ireland in which people from a Protestant background in the north would feel welcome? 
What a huge question. Um, well, I think that there is a real problem about commemoration in the North because it is offensive to people when someone is commemorated as a hero who killed your father. You know, I mean, the, the awful intimacy of the North is really what was involved in that book, Bear in Mind These Dead, mm -hmm. you know, where you've... And, and just um, as an example of... I heard people reacting when Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State, was talking about this uh, amnesty. And there's a woman who I heard talking, and, and she's somebody that I know. I've, I've interviewed her, and her husband was a part-time UDR man who was visiting her in hospital in Mid-Ulster when she had just had their first baby. And the IRA staked him out in the car park of the maternity wing. Mm -hmm. And he had just come in to see his new baby. And when he came out of the building, he was shot dead. And she was there with the baby and heard the shots, you know. And that man actually did do his time. He was he was convicted, that killer. And uh, But she said that since he got out under the Good Friday Agreement, he drives about the town and honks the horn at her and waves at her and makes faces at her and things and mm -hmm. you know a lot of people were sort of saying well that's going to happen all over the place if if we get this amnesty because then there is a bit of manners is put on people by mm -hmm. the prospect that they could potentially be still prosecuted mm -hmm. whereas if you had this the amnesty then there's going to be a lot of killers walking around feeling quite jaunty about themselves but yeah i mean there's been things like the uh, the infamous naming of the swing park after yeah, after a hunger striker. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, that, and that there's is, the King's Mill incident where I was at a Sinn Féin councillor, you know, posted a photograph of himself with a loaf of King's Mill's bread yeah, on his head, awful. which is obviously mm -hmm. the name of mm -hmm. a massacre in which 10 Protestant mm -hmm. workmen were shot dead. So, work to do. Well, I guess uh, from a legal point of view, it needs to be said that he did apologise for that and said that he hadn't meant it, but it was an appalling incident. And if he if he hadn't thought about it, he bloody well should have thought about it. But um, no, th there's offence caused all around by the way that the dead are commemorated in mm -hmm. the North. And it's very, very problematic. And um, it's, you know, from the war memorials to, I mean, some people from the, the local security forces are offended because their names are not put up on war memorials. And on the other hand, other people find war memorials offensive because... They're only for people in uniform. Yeah, and so it's it's problematic historically and it's problematic mm -hmm. going on. Like in, in Fermanagh, I've noticed recently there's all these little plaques at the side of the road showing a little IRA gunman and it's sort of where a certain volunteer was killed or whatever. And that's so offensive to, you know, people from the Protestant community along mm -hmm, the border mm -hmm. who were killed by the IRA. Mm -hmm. But it, it's really very difficult for that to be resolved and it, it needs to be done in some sort of communal agreed way. But one of the things that I think is quite hopeful in connection with my book is that I do feel that it has entered into a kind of discussion about these things because there was a review by um, the Sinn Féin's American representative, I, th I think his name is Kieran Quinn, and when I saw it I must admit I braced myself for being patronised, but in fact it was a very thoughtful review and mm -hmm. he, he said that my book challenges the IRA and Sinn Féin about to face up to the hurt that was mm -hmm. caused in the Protestant community and the 
and the lingering pain that is still experienced by people because of the IRA campaign. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, there's an interview in the book with two sisters whose parents were killed in the Enniskillen bomb, and they've never had justice. They've never found out who did that and everything. So, and he took that on board. You know, he didn't do the traditional sort of, well, it was wrong on both sides mm -hmm. and awful mm -hmm. things happen in war, you know, which has been a formula that has been used too often. And you know, the insistence that the IRA campaign was not sectarian because yeah. they shot Catholic or UC men as well as Protestant ones. <laughs> yeah. The uniform they were targeting rather yeah. than the Yeah, community. I mean, there definitely was a very strong element of sectarianism in the IRA campaign, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. got to be faced. Yeah. And up to now, there's been an unwillingness to face that. Mm -hmm. But what is King's Mills? Yeah. What is the Shankill bomb of 1990, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if not sectarian? Mm -hmm. I know we're running out of time. There's just one question that our one aspect of the book that I wanted to um, advert to, and that was, you know, the, the sort of dissenting tradition, if you like, within um, Protestantism, by which I mean that, you know, Protestantism in the North was not always, you know, associated with unionism and loyalism, mm. but say in 1798, there was United Irishmen, um, which is, you know, a tradition which was um, largely led by Presbyterian community in the North. And, that's a tradition which is now being re-explored or reconnected with by, by some um, people from a Protestant background in the North. I'm thinking of Claire Mitchell, mm -hmm. um, who reviewed your book for the Irish Times and who's bringing out her own book uh, next year. Mm -hmm. um, and then that would lead forward to, say, people who were termed rotten prods um, by the Protestant mm -hmm. unionist, unionist community themselves, people who were maybe of a socialist or maybe even communist background at the time of when Catholics were being driven out of, mm -hmm. of the shipyards around the, the first troubles around um, partition, um, they were also um, driven from work. And then maybe leading on even into the 1930s and the, uh, where the working class communities from during the Depression came together um, in protests for fair for conditions mm -hmm. uh, for the poor. We'd just like to say something just very quickly um, about that aspect that um yeah i mean there is there ha, there always has been a radical tradition and it's still going on i mean i think if you look at something that's sort of quite simple in a way uh linda irvine's work on the irish language linda is from a communist background mm -hmm. and uh, she is running these irish classes and they are entirely a good thing not least because a lot of the adults who are taking up the irish language in the protestant community our, our, our early school leavers or people who didn't do well in the, mm -hmm. in the conventional education system. And then some of them are going on into third level and so on. So it's, it's a completely sort of building community confidence project, but it's being attacked by elements of loyalism that feel that it's sort of like a, a Trojan horse for republicanism in their area. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's, it's too easy still to be called a traitor in the mm -hmm. Protestant community. No, I'm a, I'm personally a little bit disappointed. I was never called a rotten prod. You know, <laughs> it has a ring to Give it, it time. doesn't it? <laughs> Give it time. Okay, speaking of time, I think we've probably overrun. So I'm now going to open it up to questions from the audience. Thanks very much for the discussion. It's been fascinating. My first time in Belfast 30 years ago, the only Indian restaurant I could find was run by a guy with a ginger beard and an Ulster accent. <laughs> and we've been up to the wee north three or four times since we immigrated here two years ago. And we went on the walking tour 
of the Catholic part to the Protestant part where you go through the gate. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that there were ethnic restaurants on both sides and that there were a lot of people of color all over Belfast. And I just wondered if you could comment on um, the introduction of people from other countries and how that has helped to dilute this binary phenomenon that you talked about earlier. Yeah, there are a lot of, uh, there, well, there's not a lot. There is, there's a, a growing small minority of people from other countries and cultures in Northern Ireland. And you will see them in those areas because they tend to be given public housing in some of the poorest parts of Northern Ireland, you know, like West Belfast where the peace line is, you know. There's always, there's always empty houses available around the peace lines for kind of obvious reasons. But, you know, there's, there was an incident um, which I write about in the book um, where just about six months ago, the uh, multicultural centre in Donegal Pass was burned down. And uh, it, was, it was at that time that it was burned down, it was actually being used to distribute food and food parcels to people affected by the pandemic and also affected by poverty, you know. So it was like doing really good community work and it was very well liked and so on. And uh, Patrick Corrigan of Amnesty International immediately set up a GoFundMe page and made about £60,000 in a really short time. The original target was 10, I think. And, you know, in no time at all, he had this big, large sum of money. So they're going to rebuild the centre. So there's competing things going on there. There is still a very strong strand of, of racism in the north. And, um, but on the other hand, there's a lot of people there who wish to welcome people from elsewhere and, and see them as being a very positive force for good. There are some very well-established uh, communities and community groups there, like the Indian community has a very strong presence in in the north now and but there are a lot of people coming in who are like people coming here seeking asylum and they have a hard time you know it's it's left up to local community groups to try to give them support and give them language classes and so on so it's quite it's quite a mixed picture but there there is racism I mean I used to think of it as almost being like you know Immediately after the peace process, it was like leftover hatred to burn. You know, who are we going to turn it on? You know, and there was there was a bit of that. But um, I think new communities set becoming part of the texture of the North is entirely to be welcomed. How much shifting have the churches done in the last 20 years, given <laughs> the persistence of segregated education in spite of large popular support for integration? Well, I, I think that the churches have not been played a very honourable role, really. I think they're quite self-congratulatory about the role that they've played. And I don't think it's been as, as good as it, as it should and could have been. Um, you know, for example, they're still holding out. They, the only time that they come together is, seems to be like to oppose abortion or to oppose same-sex marriage. You know, that's when you see all the church leaders coming together. And if you look at that, that trap that they set for President Higgins, you know, with, with that event, you know, that, that shouldn't have been done in that way. So, um, but then I'm quite anti-religious, so I'm a bit biased in, in this regard. But I've interviewed quite a lot of people in the book who are from religious backgrounds. And there are a lot of people in the North who are, who are seeking religious outlets and so there are quite a lot of like new churches which are which are quite progressive there's one in Larne for example where lots of gay people go and 
there are churches that support uh, women who have had abortions and things, but a lot of people in the established churches reject those churches and think that they're not, not for real. But um, no, I, don't, I think the churches have been very conservative and they have, as you say, opposed integrated education in a way which isn't helpful. I know integrated education is not the answer to everything, but it would definitely make a big difference if there was more of it available in the North. You mentioned the, the lack of confidence and the panic mm -hmm. that might be in the unionist community at the moment, and, and also the populism, both in the North of Ireland and the South of Ireland of Sinn Féin, um, while alluding or mentioning the, the road signs, the celebration of terrorist acts in Fermanagh. When do we get, or in your opinion, how do we get to normal politics in the North and and what's the pathway for that? Is there is there going to be a generosity of spirit the other way from a Republican movement that sees victory <clears throat> down, the, down the road? Well, I think there's a, a definitely a need for the Republican community to be very, very careful in the way that it reacts to growing evidence that there is a there's a there's an upward trajectory for the notion of a united Ireland in both on both in both jurisdictions and I think that's another thing that Colin to be missed you know there's an I think there was an RTE poll on on Friday that showed that 67 percent of people in the republic at this point would would vote for unification in a border poll and the figures in the north are, are changing all the time but um I mean, I saw, a, I saw a tweet by Jerry Adams the other day, which was quite triumphalist. And I just thought, you know, that people really need to catch themselves on about that. You know, that's not going to, that's not going to help. And if there's, you know, you're not, unionists are not going to be banished. And I think a lot of unionists feel as if they are going to be banished. You know, so it's really important that, I think it's really, really important that the Republic realises that if there's to be, some form of Irish unity, the Republic is also going to have dramatically to change. It's not going to be a case of just sort of bringing in these grievance-ridden sectarian people from the north, you know, as sort of damaged refugees. You know, the whole place is going to have to change. There's going to have to be a new constitution. There's going to have to be a radical transformation, which would be entirely for the good, I think. But it's a, it's a huge undertaking. Um, I think Brexit has been a good lesson to people, you know, because the rush with which that was done has resulted in absolutely disastrous outcomes. So I think most people realise that if there's to be a border poll, it's going to need to be quite a slow process and a lot of work is going to have to be done to ensure that people understand that it will be an inclusive Ireland. So uh, I may run two questions together, Susan, because they are related. Uh, comment about Derek Matten uh, valuing the importance of words in a biblically infused culture. I'm wondering if that's something you identify with and related. What, in your views, have been the principal forces shaping the Protestant imagination? Is it the religious tradition? Well, there's a, there's a one line, I, I think it's called, it's named after Exodus, is it? It's named after one of the books of the Old Testament anyway, and, and it's um, talking about a, a person sort of saying, like, close one eye and be king. You know, and I, I think that kind of represents a particular strand of, of narrow unionism that, you know, it's easy to be a leader in the North if you just dig your heels in, but it's not the kind of leadership that's kind of needed now. Um, I think that, um, I think the North is very imbued with the biblical. People use a lot of biblical language. People use biblical metaphors and everybody understands what they're talking about. 
Don't you find that, Martin? Like, it's very much part of every yeah. language in the North in a way that it's You know, there's a famous thing, it's the opening scene of Cal from mm -hmm. Bernard McCloverty, the mm -hmm. film version anyway, where um, a preacher is hammering a biblical tract mm -hmm. into a tree. Um, like I said, I was up, up the North just the other day and driving past a, um, a Protestant church and those sort of thing, join the Lord's army, and I'm mm -hmm. kind of thinking... Really? Is that, yeah. is that a careful use of language? No, I spend a lot of time shouting at those signs. Mm. They're all, they are all over the place. I always want to see somebody pinning one up because yes. you always feel it's going to be some person in 18th century garb. Yeah, like, it, you know, it, it is kind of quite bleak and quite mm. often the messages are, are not the cheeriest that you could, the verses that you could pick from the Bible. Usually it's the wages of sin is death mm. or, or the like, but... Hi, thank you, Susan. Um, I just... I took a group of um, Leaving Cert history students up to Derry mm -hmm. and we went to the uh, apprentice boys and were brought around by a sort of 30-something apprentice man and he was, <clears throat> he was incredibly patronising towards me. And I was just wondering if you think there's a link between feminism and the lessening of sectarianism amongst young people. Because to be honest with you, the kids were quite shocked at how he spoke to me. Yeah. And I was quite shocked about how he spoke to me. And I asked him like about women in the Apprentice Boy movement. And he said, well, we allowed them make sandwiches, you know. And the kids, these were, you know, these were, and we, we, we are from a, a school that would be from, uh, I suppose would have the same leaning towards him. And he was in, just incredible. It was like talking to somebody from, you know, 1920s. It was really odd, and they yeah. were shocked. And I was just wondering if you think there's a link with the growth of feminism and, and yeah, I definitely, that sort of feeling. I, yeah, I definitely do. I mean, there's a couple of... I was saying to Martin earlier that it's one of the strands that moves between the two books is that disrespect of women. Um, in the Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground, I interview a woman from a working-class housing estate in um, Mid-Ulster, and um, she talked about how, as a, a girl from a poor background... Uh, she did well for herself and she was never expected to do well and no investment was put in her and uh, it was kind of like almost frowned upon that she turned out to be clever and ambitious and she said you know in the, in the working class unions community it doesn't do for women to do well you kind of have to hide the fact that you're you're trying to move into what they see as being a male sphere. Um, people used to ask me when I did the first book, Northern Protestants and Unsettled People, um, how I got a lot of the men in it to talk so frankly to me. And thinking back, I think it was probably because I was a lot younger at that stage. And I think a lot of them thought, oh, this wee girl, sure, she won't know what we're talking about anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, and there is a deeply patronizing attitude towards women. And of course, in orange culture, women do play a subsidiary role. And that's linked to the question about the Bible, you know, there's a, there is a whole sort of thing about, you know, that the woman is the helpmeet. You know, the woman shouldn't be out there putting herself in the in the foreground. It's not befitting, you know. So, but I, I definitely think that there's been a couple of generations of feminists now in the North, and that has changed a lot. I mean, some of the most progressive young people that you'll meet in the North now have had feminist mothers, mm. you know, and it's really great to see it and there is the you know the other side of it is the alienating effect of um, patriarchal attitudes mm -hmm. from mainstream unionism like I'm thinking Ian Paisley Jr was mm -hmm. asked um, what he would say to Theresa May mm -hmm. after some development in the Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol standoff and his answer was cup of tea and no sugar 
Yeah. Which um, yeah. sums up <clears throat> a lot about, you know, about him as a person mm. and as a politician. Yet another abysmal insight into Ian Paisley Jr. <laughs> it's quite a list of them at this stage. Our last question uh, is from uh, our online audience and it's about the Protestant background and wondering what you yourself most value from your own Protestant well, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I wasn't brought up in a very religious household. My, my father was Presbyterian. My mother was Church of Ireland. She never liked the Presbyterian Church, and they never really... So we got brought sort of intermittently to the local Presbyterian Church, and uh, my mother willingly and happily stayed at home and made the dinner, you know, <laughs> speaking of our previous question. But um, so I wasn't really brought up very religiously. I, there are things that I value about being from the North, you know, like I, th I think that um, I, I think that Northerners don't take things for granted. You're constantly sort of on your toes. You're thinking that you might have to defend yourself at any moment. You know, you're used to interrogation of one kind or another you're used to difficult questions. And so I think it makes for a kind of a, an inquiring, restless mind, you know. So I'd rather say that I, I find things of value of being, being a northerner, being brought up in an unsettled place. I like hymns. I love the music in the Protestant <laughs> church. <laughs> right, well, at that point, I think it's time to show our appreciation for a very stimulating enlightenment. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter, where we're at, at HistFest. HistFest.